Hello everyone, how are you doing? And welcome to another episode of the Dr. Will Show, the mobile university for entrepreneurs. I'm your host, Dr. Will. Today's guest is Autumn Arnett. And I cannot believe I did not go into my normal <laughs> intro. Woo-wee, you can tell tomorrow's gonna be a Friday for us. Um, <laughs> you know, on this podcast, I zoom in someone each episode who's dope and we just sit back and have a conversation on how on how you can live your best life and as I mentioned earlier today's guest is going to be Autumn Arnett we're going to be talking about HBCUs historically black colleges and universities now for some of you who will be watching uh, well listening to this podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud you may not have heard of the term you may not know who it is some of you will be listening, may have attended one, but we're going to be talking about HBCUs, which are very near and dear to my heart, which I hope to be able to teach at one uh, someday, but I think they serve a uh, really great purpose, and even now, a greater purpose, and I wanted to bring Autumn on so she can drop some gems and hopefully educate you on what is going down and hopefully maybe inspire you when you are seeking that extra degree or even sending your children to college that they themselves pursue a degree at an HBCU. So for those who will be listening, Autumn, will you please introduce yourself? I think you covered it. I'm Autumn Arnett. I am uh, currently serving as senior editor of U.S. News and World Report. Before that, I've been editor of a publication called Education Dive. I then spent as an assistant editor at Diverse Issues in Higher Education, um, editor of, of HBCU Digest. So just a huge advocate of HBCUs and black education in general. Um, and I'm happy to be here this evening. Thank you. Now, some will not know what an HBCU is. So will you please define it, define what an HBCU is and why was it and why were they founded? So the term HBCU stands for Historically Black College and University, and uh, they were really founded because education in this country, like everything else, was built on the exclusion of black folks. So during Reconstruction, right after slavery, you had all these newly freed black people who needed training in something. They needed some type of skill to be able to contribute to the economy. Uh, so HBCUs were founded mostly in the South and mostly as institutions to train teachers, nurses, um, ministers, there were a lot of seminaries, and agricultural and mechanical trades. And actually, Tuskegee is usually known as the agricultural institution, but it was the first nursing school in the state of Alabama uh, for any race. So, fun fact. Wow. I did not know that at all. I just learned that. <laughs> so, can you paint us a picture of the current landscape of HBCUs? Yeah, so I was thinking about this question earlier, and you know, it's really hard to broadly paint a picture of the landscape for HBCUs without talking about the broader higher education picture, right? So across the country right now, schools of all sizes and all missions are dealing with lower admissions, because uh, the marketplace is a lot more crowded than it was even 20 years ago. Um, there are fewer students coming out of high school, so the demographics are changing, and it's harder to recruit international students with our current political climate. And a lot of schools like to recruit international students because they don't rely on financial aid. They come with cash ready to pay. Um, 
supposed to kind of help balance the book. So a, a combination of all of those struggles is making enrollment difficult at all institutions. And at the same time, states and the federal government are investing less and less money in higher education. So I was talking to one VP at a big flagship a couple of weeks ago, and she mentioned to me that in her state, her institution, and this is the flagship again, is down to getting 4% of its funding from the state, which means that schools are even more tuition reliant. So, you know, as the saying goes, if America catches a cold, Black America has pneumonia, right? So mm -hmm. the same can be said of Black higher education. The publics were already getting significantly less money than their white counterparts, and so cuts hit them even harder. Um, many of the publics and the privates were having a hard time competing with majority institutions to attract students because they don't have the packages to offer the same amount of financial aid or scholarships or um, even competitive amenities that some of the PWIs have, and even top black faculty. They're losing black faculty. Uh, so they're already having a harder time competing in that sense. And then so, you know, the question becomes, what do you do, right? You can operate with 400 students, which makes it really hard to generate enough money to keep the lights on, much less remodel or improve facilities. And that's where a lot of our schools are. Uh, you can lower your admission standards to let anybody in, but then those students are going to cost more money when they get there because they need more support to get to graduation. You can cast a wide net and admit a large number of students knowing most won't graduate on time, if at all. Uh, just to get the tuition dollars and keep the lights on. But in that case, if you're, especially if you're in a state like Florida that has performance-based funding, then you get dinged over students not graduating and you lose even more state funding because your students came in and didn't finish. So I think we're at a place where uh, we as a country really need to think about whether we want everyone to go to college, which the Obama administration really pushed. And if that's what we want as a country, if that's what we see as a, a national goal, then we really need to develop a plan to support our institutions and the students once they're there. And that's something that has to happen at the legislative level because support costs money. Uh, and then when you add all of that, all the money issues and the recruitment issues to the PR battle that our institutions have to fight, when people hear about uh, a prostitution ring at Fort Valley State or a hazing death at FAMU, people project that one incident onto the whole culture, right? HBCUs don't have the luxury of having incidents portrayed as isolated incidents. When we saw sexual assault scandals in the athletic departments at like Baylor and Tennessee and Stanford, it wasn't a problem with all the schools. It was an isolated incident in that one department at those schools. Um, maybe they talked about it on the news for a day or so and then they moved on. But if we have any incident at an HBCU, everyone wants to stop, stop and talk about a culture in crisis. And this isn't to diminish the severity of any of the incidents that happen at any of the schools, but it is to say our schools are constantly in a position where they're having to defend their relevance or their necessity, and it's really hard to thrive and move ahead and innovate if you're constantly having to defend your existence. Mm. You know, I t I, I'll talk about this later, but, you know, I went to one, mm -hmm. and I went simply because... I was done, right? I was like, I, I knew I was not going to those other places. Now, mind you, I ended up graduating, <laughs> but uh, in the 11th grade, I don't know what happened. I just woke up, just black power. And mm -hmm. I was talking to my friends. And then all of a sudden I said, you know what? If I'm going to be talking about this, I need to educate myself. And I just started going to the library and I started reading all of these books. And then I was like, not going anywhere. 
but an HBCU. And my pops had gone to Ole Miss, and he was like, you going where? <laughs> you just going to HBCU? I was like, yes, brother. That's all I'm, you know, that's all I'm going, going to. And I ended up going, and I, I had a, a great experience. And we can get into that later, but, you know, I remember – Back in the day, you know, I'm 45. I remember watching Cosby show and A Different mm-hmm. World, The Fresh Prince, and Living Single, and, and you know, Martin, and, some, and a lot of other black uh, sitcoms in the day. They had people wearing, you know, some of the characters wearing HBCU sweaters and hoodies and stuff. And it was this, mm-hmm. uh, seemed like a golden age of black kids being uh, inspired to go to a black college. And I remember my college visit going on, on Tougaloo's campus. And I was like, yo, this is nice. (laughs) And the amenities were not compared to where, you know, other schools that I have attended, they weren't there, but just the whole vibe going on campus, right. I'm chilling and I'm looking around and I'm seeing all these, these black folk and I say, yeah, buddy, I am home. And you went to an HBCU. So mm-hmm. what led you to go? And what were some of your experiences that have left a lasting impression with you? So you know, we talk about uh a lot the obscure reasons that students go to college, right? So I had decided that I was sick and tired of the cold. I'm from the DC area. I was sick and tired of cold and um, I was only going South. And I had decided I was between North Carolina and Atlanta. Uh, I knew a pastor in Atlanta who was best friends with my pastor in Maryland. So we decided on Atlanta and that's where I was going. And so then I had narrowed down the city and I had to come up with a school. Emory was recruiting me pretty heavily. Uh, They had put together a pretty heavy scholarship package. First of all, I had never heard the term HBCU. I don't think Clark Atlanta for sure didn't come to recruit at my high school. I think Selman and Morehouse probably did. Howard probably did. I knew that Howard was an all-black school, and I knew that SAMU was an all-black school. But I had never heard the term, and I definitely didn't know there were a hundred-something of them. But I get down to Atlanta, and I've decided in my head that I'm going to Emory because this is, you know, the, the top school. And I had very high GPA, very high test scores coming as a junior and senior in high school. And so we get to Atlanta and we go to Emory. And I don't know if you know anything about the city of Atlanta and where Emory is located, but Emory is far from downtown Atlanta, first of all, for 17-year-old Autumn. Um, and I got on campus and it didn't feel welcoming and it didn't feel like home. and I didn't, It didn't feel like a place where I needed to be. So I convinced my daddy to let us go back to the hotel room and I was going to pull out the U.S. News Guidebook and look for schools with top journalism programs in Atlanta. And I came across this little tiny college I'd never heard of before, Clark Atlanta University. So I convinced my daddy to drive me over to Clark Atlanta. And uh, um, it was about this time of year because it was Thursday before homecoming. And um, again, in the AUC, so Morehouse does their market Wednesday, Clark has market Thursday, and Selman has market Friday. And so it's just three days in a row right before homecoming of all this black excellence. So we get out of the car and I'm immediately, same as you when you got to, I'm like, yes, this is home. Like This is where I need to be. I hadn't seen anything yet, but I, this is where I need to be. And then I somehow saw a map of the campus and realized 
how close one of the girl freshman dorms was to um, the Georgia Dome. Big football fans. So I was like, oh, I'm staying in that dorm. I'm coming to this school. Like, y'all don't have to tell me anything else. So the whole time, my father is shaking his head like, we're leaving. Get in the car. We're not doing this. <laughs> I don't know what you think this is about. And I'm like, no, daddy, listen, I belong here. Because again, uh, for those of you who have never experienced it, an HBCU during homecoming week is the most amazing. There's no competition, no, no comparison. So um, long story short, I ended up going and my daddy almost excommunicated me. And because, um, well, my, my parents hadn't gone to college and my dad had heard of Emory University and wanted to be able to tell his friends his daughter was at Emory University or, you know, Duke or some of the other schools that I had been recruited by. But this little tiny black school that he had never heard of that had, uh, they were accepting students with a C average and 900 SAT scores. My father was just like, this is not what we're doing. Um, and I think, so in terms of things that leave a, a lasting impression, um, it was not until much later after graduation that the impression was kind of made, right? When you get out and you realize that, uh, and actually it's come now as a parent, because my ex-husband says that I raise very arrogant children. And um, he's like, your children, are they don't understand that, you know, there are going to be people who are going to tell them they're not as great as. And I said, well, I wasn't raised that way. I didn't hear that in school. That wasn't my experience in life. And if somebody tells them that, they can start from up top and then knock down a notch and they'll still be in a good place, you know. So I think having that space to be able to be yourself, and it's the same conversation we were having about if you're constantly having to defend your existence or your right to be somewhere, uh, it's very hard to thrive and succeed. So having that, that space where, and, and listen, I learned more about diversity at a black college than I've learned as an editor of a diverse publication, you know, than I've learned anywhere because to get to a place where people mostly look like you, mm-hmm. but they're still so different. The experiences of black folks who are coming from Lincoln, Nebraska are so different than my DC metropolitan experiences are so different from the Caribbean experiences. I learned so much more about how different people can be in a space where you would think it's a homogenous environment. And I think that's the thing that I tell people. And that's the thing that stood out to me the most. Mm-hmm. It was real. It was just so, whoo, it was so cool. Black excellence stood out to me because mm-hmm. when I was on campus and, you know, going my classes and I'm looking at all these people who look like me, who, were scholars and who had gotten into some of these other big name, you know, traditionally mm-hmm. white schools and they chose to go to Tougaloo. And when you're in that environment, it's like, okay, I got to step up. I got to do the work. Mm-hmm. And when you have professors who are like, you come from a mighty people, we expect greatness from you. And I had yeah. a 16 on my ACT and they still talk to me as though I walked through the door with a 32. Um, Mm -hmm. and so that was like, oh my gosh, like this is insane. And then again, to see the black people from, from everywhere. And Dr. Olibody called me out my freshman year (laughs) because I went to sleep and I'm, I'm in this freshman political science class. I'm in auditorium. How does cat know Mm me? And you're like, Willie Davenport, why are you sleeping in my class? I didn't sleep anymore, but I was just worried like this cat newbie, like this was crazy. Uh, and so it's real cool to even 
now be on Facebook and to connect with all those folks uh, mm -hmm. from the loo and just to see all of the things that they're doing. And I'm like, like, this is why you go. Mm -hmm. This is why you go. Um, and so now I want to ask you, you know, cause some people, they think HBCU and they think inferior education. Mm -hmm. You know, like I work at a high, work for a K through 12 school district. And it was interesting because in this Keystone class where the teacher was talking to students about, you know, it was, it was a college project, like research these colleges and talk about these different things. And most of the kids actually research non HBCU colleges. Mm -hmm. And I'm just kind of thinking like, this is Mississippi. We got a gang <laughs> of HBCUs here. With, and most of the people that we know who are doctors and lawyers and judges mm -hmm. and principals and teachers and whatever, they went to an HBCU. Not to mention the fact that, you know, you pull a 25, 26 on the ACT. And a lot of places you're going to be going for the free Mm -hmm. Where some schools of 25 will just get you in the door. You get a little partial, you know, but right. you're, not, you're not going for the free. Uh, I'll speak to, if you can, some of the st statistics of the successes of black folks who actually get their undergraduate degrees from HBCUs. So I think just to kind of talk about your point about uh, people thinking there's an inferior education, if I may first, um, it's a bigger societal issue of not valuing black things and black minds and black lives, right? Outside of entertainment, black folks aren't good for anything in this country and in some folks' minds. And I think the bigger problem though is that we buy into it ourselves, right? You have a generation or two of black folks who, like you said, got their degrees at HBCUs because they didn't have a choice but won't send their children to HBCUs because their children are better than that. You know, they're past that. Um, just the idea, even among ourselves, that if something is for white folks, it's more valuable automatically. I saw something online recently to that point about people now looking down on travel to Greece because black folks have started traveling to Greece, which is crazy, right? How do you devalue a trip to Greece because black people have started vacationing there? Um, but I'll never forget the first time I went to Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, Martin Luther King's daddy's church, and I saw the white Jesus hanging up in the pulpit. And it, it, I joke and say it ruined my whole life. But for me, how could the church that I was considering the cradle of the civil rights movement have a white Jesus in the pulpit? And I think the Bible says not to make graven images anyway. And in my head, uh, my Jesus looks like Marvin Gaye on the Hear My Dear cover. Everybody always laughs when I say that. But, um, but to me, just the symbolism, right, of you not worshiping something and not having idols and not being able to see yourself and your God, which is so much for me. Um, but in terms of statistics, HBCUs enroll about 10% of the nation's black students across the country, uh, but they produce 17% of the black bachelor degree holders. And if you're looking at just science, technology, engineering, and math, it's 25% of the black STEM degrees. So when people talk about a narrative of low graduation rate, uh, this is the context that's missed. So a 2016 study from the Center for American Progress found that across the country, black students account for about 9% of the population at public flagship universities. 
So at your, let's take North Carolina, at your University of North Carolina, uh, black students make up 5.8%. So UNC, most of the black students who go to a public institution in North Carolina are going to Fayetteville State, North Carolina A&T, Winston-Salem, Elizabeth City, Central. Most of the black students, I mean, UNC only has 5.8%, right? So most of them are not getting into that institution. But when you have a conversation about graduation rates, UNC's graduation rate is 90.3. But remember, only 5.8 of their students are black, so they're not graduating black students at that rate, right? Uh, Winston-Salem, A&T, and Central all hover between 45 and 48%. But a majority of their students are black. So when you talk about evaluating schools based only on graduation rates, which a lot of conversations do now, uh, without talking about who they're graduating and who they're letting in to begin with to even have a shot at graduating, what you're doing is perpetuating a cycle that says only people who are white and well-off deserve to go to college because that's overwhelmingly who the schools with those highest metrics, the top research institutions are letting in, those are international students. And this is before we even get to statistics about personal satisfaction after graduation. There was a 2015 study from Gallup that reported that black students who graduate from HBCUs were doing better than their black predominantly white institution graduate counterparts on uh, five different metrics. So it was purpose well-being, social well-being, community well-being, physical well-being, and financial well-being actually had the largest gap at 11 points higher for HBCU grads. And I think that goes totally against the usual prevailing narrative that says, oh, if you go to an HBCU, you're not going to get a good job or you're not going to make any money. Uh, Gallup looked at five factors to compare black grads at HBCUs and black grads versus PWIs, and in every category, HBCU grads outperformed with the highest level of outperformance in, in the financial area. So I think that's really important to highlight. That's all right. That's all right. I know the folks I know, you know, now the educators, you know, we don't make, we don't make money, uh, but... Neither do journalists. <laughs> But I got homies, you know, they're judges and dentists mm -hmm. and uh, doctors and scientists. You know, they 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 doing all they doing all right. I just I'm no good in math, and I wasn't that intrigued in science, so uh, couldn't go. You that and I time. did this wrong. You needed different majors. <laughs> <laughs> couldn't couldn't major uh, in those things. But it is. I, I've been to both institution and it's just so interesting because the thing about college is it's always a personal fit so first mm -hmm. i want people who will be listening to this is not fall for the okie dokie of a name anyway right because you could go to a smaller school that could feed your soul and feed you intellectually and you go on mm -hmm. to become ceo of google as opposed to going to Harvard and and graduating and not doing anything. I actually know someone who went to Tougaloo, has a JD from Harvard and a PhD somewhere else. And Harvard is not one of the places she talk about a lot. And she graduated from Harvard Law School. So you have to, you know, pick that that right institution, that right fit that goes okay. first. But what I love about the that fit of an HBCU is 
when you leave, you are self-assured of who you are and you are ready to take on that next challenge. And of mm-hmm. course, you know, we can talk about academic preparation, but when you go to dental school or you go to medical school or you, or you are pursuing an MBA, you don't feel like you're lucky to be there. You know what I'm saying? Like, right. you, like I got this because I got things to do. Absolutely. All right. All right. So I've been checking out some stuff. Now I, I'm assuming this is the Trump factor, but I don't want to just pull that out. But I've seen a lot. I've been reading a lot of articles over the past several months mm-hmm. that have talked about like a resurgence of black students now starting to attend HBCUs. So because it was talking about like for a while attendance dropped and what oddly happened, a lot of white kids start going to HBCUs and Asian mm-hmm. kids. Can you speak to the resurgence? Like what is happening to for black students now to say, hey, black schools are cool again? I think a lot of it is what what we were just saying about quality of life and fit, right? So between 2014 and 16, even right before Trump, it was just so exhausting to be black in this country. It felt like every other day, someone who looked like you was getting killed by the police. It was just, I mean, there were days I would come home and couldn't talk to anybody, right? Just tapped out. Um, And then the next year, Donald Trump took office and white nationalists started parading openly in the streets. We're still seeing some overflow of this on college campuses with the statue protests and with like the sleeping while black incident at Yale and a litany of other incidents. And I think for black parents and black students, a lot of people are finding solace in the idea of sending their children off to places where people look like them. Uh, I always joke, my children are 10 and eight, and I always joke that me going to an HBCU makes them the niece and nephew of all of HBCU dumb. They've got college presidents and alumni that neither one of us have ever met cheering them on because they're part of the family, right? So I think for Black folks in particular, community and that idea of family, and we joke here in our house about cousin culture, is so important. And I think that has overtaken the name brand obsession in this current climate. I think the idea of your son or daughter not having to fight to simply exist or constantly prove that they belong someplace is becoming a real value for students and their parents. Um, And I think, again, the same thing that I talked about earlier in terms of it being very hard for institutions to thrive if they're constantly being attacked. The same thing goes for students. A lot of HBCUs reported record enrollments in 2016 and 2017. And I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, the Missouri protests and Freddie Gray and, Mike Brown and just a lot of things that were going on around the country. Mm. I love seeing it happen. And I'm hoping, me too. You know, I'm hoping, you know, somebody got a job for me. Um, let me listen to the podcast and go, hmm, let me do some Google searches on this brother. Because uh, I, I want to teach at mm. one because I know the experience of being there is like, and I would love to be on, on campus and just kind of like dropping some knowledge, maybe do, helping to shape some youth. Uh, it's just a great, uh, oh man, people, y'all just got to go. It's hard to explain it. It's like what I tell people about the dissertation. You haven't done mm-hmm. it, you don't know. And when you, until you experience being on that campus, 
and everything is different. Being in the cafeteria is different. Mm -hmm. um, you know, being on the yard is is different. It's just a whole in the dorms. It's just a whole new. Uh, it's so different. Even you know when the the fraternities and sororities, you know, the, the new line comes out. It's like an mm -hmm. event on campus. You know what I'm saying? So it, it just. Uh, Woo, people. See, you're taking me back right now. You're taking me back. Uh, See, and I'm sitting here shaking my head about how we're doing this podcast interview about how homecoming week is what dragged me to an HBCU, and I'm missing homecoming, and I'm so disappointed in myself <laughs> this week. All my friends are posting pictures. I'm just sitting at home talking about I'm blocking everybody on every media. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. So, you know, how are it now? Man, whoo, it is taking a beating across mm -hmm. the board. Tuition is going up everywhere. You got folks graduating with degrees, waiting tables. Mm -hmm. uh, just a lot of stuff going on. And people are questioning even the value of a college education. Mm -hmm. uh, and some people are like, why would you have $100,000 in debt for an undergrad degree? First of all, if you're $100,000 in debt for an undergraduate degree, you're doing it wrong because you for sure you're went wrong. to the wrong school. Let you know that right <laughs> now. Even if you had none but loans, daddy, your undergraduate degree should not cost you $100,000. You a Mississippi, go ahead to Alcorn. Yeah. <laughs> You just went to the wrong school, just letting you know. Uh, how are some HBCUs actually adapting to this digital age of disruption and preparing their students for the, the uncertainty of this gig economy? You know, technology initiatives are going to vary from school to school and even in a lot of cases, program to program. Um, because of the funding disparities we talked about earlier, you're still going to walk into some classrooms that have a good old chalkboard at the end of the room, right? Um, but Jackson State, for instance, deployed an iPad initiative, which Claflin University in South Carolina is trying to emulate, that gave every student coming in the door an iPad. And the idea was to allow students to access digital textbooks and course materials to help them cut down on costs. Um, but I think the biggest preparation in terms of a digital society is in curriculum. Uh, Howard is leading a coalition of HBCUs that hosts a one-year immersion program for students in uh, Silicon Valley that actually just started this fall. And the students go and they live out in Silicon Valley for a year. And they take their classes out there and they get to learn from professionals. And uh, this is it, it's similar to what would be a study abroad program for a year. So you go out there and you live out there for a year. And that's part of an effort to really try to uh, train Black folks for the changing demands of the tech industry. In terms of the gig economy, you know, we're good at hustling. We always have a side hustle. HBCUs are good at encouraging entrepreneurship. You've got Hampton, Norfolk State, Savannah State, Xavier, all of those have entrepreneurship majors specifically. But I think what you get at an HBCU that really is most valuable in an uncertain economy is the ability to adapt that resiliency, the learning to do more with less. You know, the motto of my alma mater, Clark Atlanta, is that I'll find a way or make one. Mm. And I think that's really the spirit of HBCUs and their graduates in general. 
is getting it done, getting in there. No matter what you don't have, you figure out with what you do have how to get it done. Uh, and I think the same is true for technology. The tools are always going to change. So what HBCUs are really good at doing is producing thinkers and problem solvers who are malleable and flexible and resilient and who can adapt and learn any tool they're given. Wow. All right. I got to go. Tougaloo, Eagle Queen. And it was crazy because I met a teacher here when she retired. I was like, you went to the loo? She's like, yeah. We, we set that same couple of bars of the song. I was like, you go. This is awesome, people. I'm, I'm, in, I'm enjoying this conversation. I don't talk to many people about it. Uh, I wish I, wish I could. You know, at, at the school, I try to talk to the students about, you know, the whole idea of black excellence and, mm-hmm. and loving yourself and embracing everything. And, and I hope, you know, one of the things from Black Panther is that black people will start to say, look at them say, well, they showed out at the theater with all of the African. Mm-hmm. But I'm hoping that somehow people take that vibe, take that feeling and start to say, we need to go to an HBCU. We need to learn about our own. We need to make our own better. And then once you graduate, send those alumni dollars mm-hmm. back to where those schools will not have to depend on the federal government or the state government for funding. Before we go. And not just your alumni dollars to get your company to make donations to your institution too, right? Most company, most corporations have uh, philanthropic arms. Imagine if they gave the money to Tougaloo College instead of Ole Miss, right? Yes, yes. And by the way, Google, Microsoft, Howard is cool. But how it isn't known for the technology like Jackson State is? Listen. Okay. I'm just, just going to say now, if you wanted to do that, Jackson State has one mm-hmm. of the top-rated computer science programs in the country. You could have gone there. You know, Howard is cool for business, medical school, you know, but um, entertainment. But J-State, JSU. I, you know, I didn't go to Tougaloo. But JSU would have been a great place for you to create your, your initiative. And it's still, you still got time. You don't, you don't have to work with just one black school. You still got time. Work with all of them. Yeah, you still got time. Go roll up JSU. Apple, come on. Y'all need black graduates? They got you. Yes. Yes, a great <laughs> feeder. That's what gets me sometimes when people say, the pipeline isn't there and mm-hmm. the problem is they're looking in the wrong place if you are going to stanford and mit for your pipeline okay you're that going Cal politic right that's your pipeline and we know that they may have two percent black folk on mm-hmm. campus and that two percent you don't know how many of them are actually studying right uh technology all right, at Stanford, they can be doing anything. You need to go where the black folk are. Mm-hmm. So go to the HBCUs where the talent is already there and find those schools and do what other corporations are doing with other schools. Create programs, internships, and feeder systems where you yourself will be able to find those folks when you start 
saying, well, we need to bring in some talent. You ought to have your pipeline created for yourself because you've been putting in the work. Uh, mm -hmm. So before we go, what is your advice, uh, your words of, of wisdom to those who will be listening and maybe uh, he or she is a teacher and they're looking to pursue their uh, a graduate degree or they're a teacher who they're, they're a parent and they have a, a son or daughter who is approaching the time of graduation and they're looking at colleges right now. Mm -hmm. What would you say to them to get them looking at either pursuing a degree at HBCU for themselves or their children actually going? Well, I'm going to answer this a little bit differently. Um, you know, a couple minutes ago, you were talking about fit and the importance of finding the right fit. So I'm a proponent of quality black education and people making the decisions that make the most sense for them and their families. And that includes financially, academically, uh, so looking at the programs, a focus that you're looking at, location, research and publication opportunities, where you're going to be nurtured and where you're going to feel like you can thrive and not be in defensive mode. Uh, and that might mean ultimately you may decide that getting your graduate degree at an HBCU is not what makes the most sense for you, right? Uh, if you work in Louisville and you need to stay in Kentucky and you want an MBA, that master's in public administration you can get from Kentucky State might not help you. But if you put a little bit more legwork into it and you're a student who can study online, for instance, maybe FAMU's online MBA program does make sense for you. So it might be worthwhile to just take a second and look and see what options are out there. Um, I'm a big proponent of apply and then have the conversation. I think so many of us, because again of that value thing, because of that automatic assumption that a degree from an HBC was worth less, don't even apply or don't even look to see which schools might have the program. If the one down the street doesn't, you're not going to go find one that does. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of people don't realize that HBCUs are doing a lot of online programs. And while they haven't quite gotten there for bachelors, most of them aren't doing a lot at the undergraduate level. Most of the ones that have online programs are focusing heavily on the graduate level. So just going to do a little bit more legwork. Um, and then after you apply, once you get your offers and you get, you know, your, your cost analysis and your financial aid package, and if then you decide that maybe it's not the right fit, and I think that's okay, but I think too many of us just disqualify on the front end. And by the way, to your point, other students who don't look like us are looking at our schools and seeing the value and realizing they were already $100,000 in debt in undergrad, and maybe they should try to find a more um, cost-effective option. And they're actually, if you to come back to Howard, if you look at Howard's dental school, that's majority not us. Right. So other people are realizing the value in getting their graduate degrees at our schools. It's just our folks who have to get over that hump and realize that you first apply. And then if it's not a good fit, you can rule it out. But have the conversation. All right. All right. Y'all going to learn something today. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> Thank you, Autumn, for coming on the show. Thank you, sir, for having me. It was fun. You're welcome. Yes, it, it was. And having those memories the recollections to talk about the experience uh it is 
awesome people. Like I've never been to Wakanda. I know it doesn't exist in real life. You know, I said that last week I did a, a career talk at a school and I said, you know, Wakanda doesn't exist. And some teachers looked at me and said, yes, it does. I said, look, I know in spirit it does. But on no, Wakanda's in Atlanta. They do all the filming down in Atlanta. So take yourself to the AUC this weekend. They're homecoming. <laughs> you, you can't let the homecoming go, can you? Listen, I'm struggling. Everybody is there and I'm not. I'm still here in Maryland. I'm struggling. Wow. I've never been Wakanda is real. It is happening this weekend. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's all right. And I have been to an HBCU, people. You're going to love it. Go check it out. Check, kick it with yourself. Take your children. Go the experiences you, that you're going to have, the people you are going to meet, the relationships that you are going to create. It's going to be like nothing that you have seen before. I, I when I see my folks, it's still kind of like, wow, man, it could be, I couldn't, I could have not seen people in 10 years. And then we see each other again. It's like, oh, we go, we, we, we're just transported back to the loop. Staying in Renner Hall, people, Renner Hall. Do y'all remember Renner Hall? <laughs> University is, they're building and expanding, right? But Renner Hall is still standing. Like all the stuff is building new. I, my wife and I went about six months ago. I said, oh, let me show you my old school. And you see all these new buildings kind of popping up around and Renner Hall is still standing. I'm like, that thing ain't going nowhere. Uh, <laughs> we're just gonna wheel fall off. <laughs> yeah, I still got it. I'm like, what? But people we'll build a new building before we'll knock an old one down and repair it. <laughs> yeah. But but it's people, I think people still live there though. Um uh, <laughs> which we which when I got there. You know, they made, like, they redid the bathrooms. Right. And I was like, what? This is fresh. Uh, it was just a different experience, you know, when you went, because I, I didn't know what they expect, you know, just living somewhere away from home like that. And so just to be, you know, when I got there and I'm like, this is nice. You're kicking it with, with your friends. Especially late at night, you know, because y'all know how college undergrad is. You don't go and sleep much. Kick it. Uh, well, I'm 45 now, so I need my sleep. But it was a great time. So, uh, people, you know how I do this. This podcast will be available on iTunes and SoundCloud. I need you to rate, follow, subscribe, leave some stars, people. Because when Oprah comes on the show, I want her to know that we do big things around here on the Dr. Will Show, the mobile university for entrepreneurs. I would like to again thank my guest, Autumn Arnett, for coming on and dropping the gems and furthering this conversation about the importance of HP, HBCUs. Thank you, Autumn. Thank you, sir. Have a good night. Thank yes, ma'am. As always, people invest in you. EDU, peace.